It's uh, episode seven of History with Tom Diggy Diggy to Tom to Tom Tom. And though I know it'll be fun to get some. I don't know hip hop. Is that a famous hip hop song? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Whose name I can't remember. Give me two seconds. Research that it. would be Dumb Diggy Diggy. Dida. The 411 Dumb. I don't think anyone would really count that as hip hop or pop R&B. Again, I don't know. I, I really don't know. This is sweet revenge for last week's sporting extravaganza. <laughs> yeah, this is going to talk musical genres for the whole podcast. I don't know what I'm doing. And today I'm going to talk about Synthwave from the 1980s. <laughs> I was for a brief period in a Kraftwerk tribute band, would you believe? <laughs> well, it was really just us covering Kraftwerk songs and occasionally noodling on keyboards. And were these proper keyboards or sort of just like ones designed for eight-year-olds? that just Poundland, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> they were professional grade enough that they still had like Yankee Doodle demo songs on them and light up keys. Yeah, perfect. And animal sounds. Yeah. Arf, arf, arf. <laughs> Hello everyone, Sam here. If you like this podcast, would you do us a favour and subscribe and review us on your favourite app? It'll really help us grow. Even better, why not share it with your friends? They will definitely thank you later. Right, that's quite enough begging. Let's get on with the podcast. Hello, Tom. Hello, Sam. How are you? I am good. That was a forced intro. <laughs> right, I'm going to have to leave this in this time because of the way that we've done it. But for anyone who's listening to this, and this is episode seven, so I feel like among our most dedicated supporters, we have people who are starting to get a feel for what we do. We are recording in different countries, so we're not sat looking at each other. Fortunately. I'm in the UK. It's very late in the evening here and Tom is in New Zealand and it's nice and early in the morning where he is so because we're not looking at each other we record our bits at each other's ends and then Tom sends his to me so we have to have some way of syncing it all up so we do a countdown together the idea being that the countdown is together Tom and then it's easier for me to sync I'd like it to up. point out that it is together from my end Sam I think there's a delay I say the numbers at the same time as you and every time you belittle me criticise me and quite frankly it hurts Sam. Every podcast I leave a, a lesser man <laughs> uh, That's not to do with that though Tom that's just the grinding toll this is taking on you <laughs> Welcome to episode 7 of That Was Genius, a podcast in which two happy-go-lucky guys on different sides of the world amaze each other with a new history story each week <laughs> yippity aye. <laughs> And what's this week's theme, Tom? It's lost, isn't it? It's lost is the theme. The theme is lost. Lost is the theme, Sam. Wow. And who have you chosen to do this week, Tom? Well, it's not a person, although there are some, um, you know, main characters, because it is history we're talking about. Although, <laughs> although when I was at university, one of the course lecturers was trying to specialise in bovine history. <laughs> Which didn't sound very interesting, to be honest, Sam. I know, I know you've got to try and find a niche in life, but the history of cows didn't really... Uh... There really is a PhD in any old shit, isn't there? Oh, there really is. I know. What's the value of bovine history? Anyway, I'm going to talk about the shipwreck of the Virgold Drake. Virgold Drake. I know, I, Sam, I'm going to apologise in advance to this podcast. If the last podcast wasn't bad enough with my attempted pronunciations of South American names, I've got to try Dutch names this week. <laughs> I'm just going to murder them, and we're just going to gloss over it. I'm going to do it with a degree 
of confidence that will hopefully mean people don't pick up on the fact that I'm just talking shit and mispronouncing names. Hopefully we do have, I almost said hopefully we don't have any Dutch listeners, but actually I would love to have some Dutch listeners, Sam. I would just like to have Dutch listeners that give me a bit of leeway. That would be nice. If you are from Dutchland, clog on to whatever (laughs) you have in the substitute for the internet, some kind of digital cheese toasty web, and uh, do let us know. (laughs) Say hi. That was incredibly insulting. (laughs) 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 I was incredibly insulting. I'm not convinced we're going to have any Dutch listeners now. (laughs) I love all of our listeners from wherever you are, and if you're in the Netherlands, you're very welcome and lovely people. Having just horribly stereotyped you. Oh, don't worry, I'm going to be horribly stereotyping more as this podcast goes on. Well, this is true, Sam, and we're quite happy horribly stereotyping English people as well, aren't we? So we there are no are. double standards here. I think that as long as you approach Dutch with confidence, you'll be fine. I used to have a job as a newsreader on a South Asian radio station that covered lots of news in India and Pakistan and included an awful lot of Hindi words. And I tended to find the best way to deal with them and tackle them was to not read them beforehand, panic about a line above, (laughs) gulp, and just plough on through. And uh, no one ever complained. No complaints. (laughs) No one ever listened, but no one ever complained. I didn't realise you did that. That sounds like an exciting job. You've done many exciting jobs, Sam. I've had my fingers in many pies, Tom. And indeed, some horse poo, which was my first ever job, was cleaning up horse poo with my bare hands. This wasn't straight out of university, was it, Sam? Because you'd be slightly disappointed. <laughs> Arts that degrees. That was your graduate degree, yeah. <laughs> I'm a trained archaeologist. And you're making me shovel horse shit. No, it was, uh, I, how old was I? I was about 10 at the time, 11, 12, something like that. I got paid £2 a wheelbarrow. Those were the days. <laughs> how many wheelbarrows of horse shit could you do in a day? Oh, I'd do seven before breakfast. And then I'd wash my hands, and then we'd have breakfast. <laughs> or shit's not quite as unpleasant as a lot of other poos, though, is it? It's no, quite ho- fibrous. It's fine. Um, it's it's really but, nothing to be concerned about. Have you ever seen an elephant poo? I haven't. I imagine it's quite something. It's like horse poo, but round. The big, big cannonball Bigger. of horse poo. Yeah. How did we get here? Oh, yes, pronunciations of Dutch words. That's right. Speaking of shit. <laughs> so I'm I'm talking about the shipwreck of the Virgold Drake, which means guilt dragon in Dutch, and that was in 1656. And I'm also going to talk about another shipwreck, which was the shipwreck of the Batavia, which is slightly connected and also just quite interesting. Huh. In fact, there's a, there's another shipwreck. In fact, now that I think about it, there's just general it's just general shipwreck chaos, Sam. In Western Australia in the 17th century, it's just chaos. There are shipwrecks everywhere. Wrecks are plenty. Um, so that's what I'm going to be talking about. What are you talking about? Can I just check before I spill the beans on mine? Gilt dragon. Is that guilt as in covered in gold or is that guilt as in the guilty <laughs> dragon? <laughs> oh, I've killed someone else. Oh, I've done a terrible thing. Oh, I burnt someone. Oh, oh. I, s- I sneezed. <laughs> I said a frog in oh. my throat. Oh, <laughs> and it, it burnt down a house. Oh, I didn't mean to. Oh, not a school. Not again. <laughs> oh, dear me. Oh, I'd never forgive myself. <laughs> it's guilt spelt G-I-L-T. So, no, not, not with a U. So it's it's the guilt dragon. Got it. There you go. So, But they did give us an opportunity to do a wonderful impression of a guilty dragon. <laughs> Excellent. I, on the other hand, am talking about the British explorer... And inspiration, apparently, for Indiana Jones himself, the wonderful Harrison Ford. Percy Harrison Fawcett. Harrison Ford? Percy? I think... Oh, yes. I 
have I? No, I haven't heard of this. I don't think I have. It rung a bell, and then I realised that that bell wasn't rung. <laughs> it was a wrong number. Just give me a little teaser, Sam. A little teaser? A little teaser? To get me salivating. Percy Harrison Fawcett is a man who got lost trying to find something that was lost. So, the, as the old saying goes, not all who wander are lost, Tom. But he certainly fucking was. <laughs> and dead. Presumably he had some idea where it was. Well, who knows? We never found it. <laughs> so, he knew what, He knew where he was looking to look. Did he make something up and then make up where it might be and then go looking for it? No, but he was a very brilliant man, as we will discover anon. I almost did Antarctic exploration. Well, you know that I live in Christchurch, New Zealand. Um, it's often been the gateway to the Antarctic in history. And there's a port that sits behind Christchurch, which is pretty much connected to Christchurch, called Littleton Harbour. And there's a port there. A lot of Antarctic explorers left from Christchurch and from Littleton Harbour. And uh, the museum in Christchurch has some fantastic displays on Antarctic exploration uh, that are fantastic. Not just the well-known ones, not just Roald Damelson. All of the ones who died. Yeah, yeah so there's a lot of death. All of the dead Victorians. There's a lot of frostbite. There's, yeah, there's a lot of uncomfortable journeys to a very, very cold and boring place. There's a lot of beating penguins over the head and eating them as well. Well, it was that or pemmican, wasn't it, which was their What's preferred food event. Pelican. Pemmican. It's uh, fruit and nuts in a bar of lard. Delicious. Well, that's got to be high calorie, but not the tastiest. God, that'd be a bit... No, it's, uh, it's basically beef dripping with nuts and raisins and cherries in it. Well, there you go. Who's going to go first? Well, Tom, in the fine tradition of That Was Genius, I have an item to flip, which is far more unnecessarily difficult than a coin. And today we will be deciding our fates with a copy of... Is it a football? Is it a football? No. <laughs> that would be a lot more difficult to flip. It would be a lot more difficult. No, it's a copy of the Gorillaz seminal 2005 album, Demon Days. I've listened to that, Sam. Talking about my musical ignorance, I have actually listened to that album. It's got some nice songs it's on it. It's got some great songs. If you like music, you'll be a fan. Would you like The Front, featuring the picture of said gorillas or would you like the back with the track listing that also has all of the boring copyright bump i'll have the bump please you're a bump man i like that about you tom it's landed on the front cover so i think i'm going to let you go first tom oh okay i'm going first right the shipwreck of the Vogold drake or the guilty dragon the guilty dragon <laughs> in 1656 now this ship was a ship of the dutch east india company shorthand Vok, and I'm definitely not going to try and pronounce the Dutch version of the Dutch East India Company. Oh, come on, you can do this. Go with confidence, go in hard. I'm going to have to look it up again, Sam, because I didn't even put it in my notes, because it was such a long <laughs> name. So I'm not going to, I'm not going let's to take it. In, let's take it in turns. Oh, God, yeah, you're not bloody wrong, are you? So it is the Veringed Oistingdische Compagnie. <laughs> I'm still trying to find it, but it is a mouthful. Uh, company. There's a lot of double O's and double E's, isn't there? There certainly are. Oostendisch Kompagni. That's not. I thought that was quite good. Actually, I was quite impressed with myself. Oostendisch Kompagni. That just sounds like you're taking the piss. I wasn't. I was attempting to pronounce it. I'm a sincere person, Sam, when it comes to other people's cultures. Call it the Dutch East India Company. We've had a go. <laughs> yeah. We both agreed it's not really our bag, Dutch. So the Gilt Dragon, to avoid having to pronounce that name again, was en route from Netherlands to Jakarta, which at the time was known as Batavia. 
and I'll refer to it as Batavia probably for most of this, although I might occasionally forget and call it Jakarta. Anyway, Jakarta slash Batavia. Now, this is a notoriously difficult trip in the 1600s. Boats would go past the Cape of Good Hope, which is in South Africa, and then they would hit the Roaring Forties. So they'd get prevailing winds that would blow them across towards Australia, or as it was known, the Great Southland that hadn't been fully mapped yet. So it was, a, it was an unknown area. The Great Southland. It was a great time for names and adventuring and exploring, wasn't it? Absolutely. Well, was it last week we were talking about Pirates Cove? A lot of places in Australia and yeah. New Zealand have some excellent names. Some of the coastal areas have got some fantastic names. And so you get blown across to Australia and the basic premise was you would use the, the method called dead reckoning to have a rough idea of where you were, but dead reckoning was not a very good way of measuring longitude. And then when you got in sight of Western Australia, you would head north up to Jakarta or Batavia. And it wasn't until actually 1730. Have you ever been to Greenwich, the museum in Greenwich? I have. I love the museum in Greenwich. Ah, fantastic museum. Fantastic. And the whole story behind John Harrison's uh, marine chronometer. It's a fantastic story. But it wasn't until 1730 that people were able to measure longitude with any degree of accuracy because clocks were just notoriously inaccurate on ships, weren't they? Because they just got battered around. Anyway, what would happen with the dead reckoning method as they were crossing across towards Western Australia is they would quite often go faster or slower than they, they thought they were, and then they would hit reefs. And obviously, it's not very good to get involved in a shipwreck off the coast of a land that nobody knows much about, having just crossed a really rather large sea. And this happened reasonably frequently. In fact, in the la- I think I read a statistic that this is 1656, the decade before that, something like 150 ships had been shipwrecked. Jesus, that's astonishing, isn't it? Considering it was still a new part of the world, kind of unknown. So for there to even be like 150 ships sailing around. <laughs> Absolutely incredible. But then it's spices. People were trying to get the spices back to Europe. So a lot of money in it. There were 193 men on this boat, and it had trade goods worth around about 100,000 Dutch guilder, together with eight chests of silver coin worth about 80,000 Dutch guilder. I don't know what that means in in equivalent money. I probably should have researched that before the podcast. Six euro. (laughs) £12.70. Eight billion lira. (laughs) This is sounding like the prizes in Bullseye. (laughs) (laughs) A speedboat. So they hit a reef. Um, Two of the the lifeboats get to shore with about 75 people. All the other people, unfortunately, are killed. The captain, and this is, I think this is um, a rule, or this became a rule of the Dutch East India Company. The captain was supposed to stay with the shipwreck the shipwreck survivors and so the upper steersman do you know what an upper steersman is sam is he the man who controls the steering wheel i have no idea to be honest i was hoping you'd know it was a genuine question oh no <laughs> no i have no idea i'm not very good with maritime stuff i, I don't know how to tie a knot I, I certainly don't know how to i was about to say drive a boat that probably demonstrated my <laughs> ignorance quite nicely didn't it is it pilot a boat? Captain a boat, probably. Sail a boat. Sa- that's the one. Sail. <laughs> that's the one. That's the verb I was looking for. It's a hard so, one. <laughs> it was a, tr- it was a tricky one, wasn't it? So the upper steersman is a chap called Abraham Lehman, which is good to pronounce. I, I can pronounce that one. And with six men, he sets off with one of the open boats, a lifeboat, to Jakarta, which is a journey of 2,000 miles 
over 40 days with very limited water. Bloody hell. It's a long journey. Was there nowhere closer? <laughs> yeah, well, there, there was the Australian mainland because they, they would have been very close to Western Australia, but they didn't know what was there. I imagine it was pretty inhospitable. Parts of Australia are pretty pretty unpleasant. Very true. The country's not very nice either. <laughs> so, <laughs> That's your Kiwi talking, isn't it? In fairness, when I have visited Australia on a number of occasions and I was expecting Australians to be a bit dickish, but they were actually very, very pleasant. It's a lovely country. Oh, Although they are slightly racist, Sam. Ah, uh, the irony. <laughs> the irony. <laughs> you accusing the Australians of being racist. As a people, not to stereotype them, but frankly racist. Anyway, they make it to Jakarta, so they, they succeed, and it's a pretty unpleasant story by all accounts. They have very limited water on this journey, um, not very much shelter, but they do get to, to Jakarta, where they speak to the governor. Who did they eat first? We haven't quite got to cannibalism yet. Oh. But don't worry, Sam. Later on in the story, there will be drinking of urine. Oh, thank God for that. (laughs) Yeah, I didn't want to disappoint you. And there is murder aplenty when we talk about the the Batavia shipwreck. So don't worry, there's plenty of juicy content to come. So in Jakarta, the governor is a chap called Matesuika. Again, not sure if I pronounced that properly. He immediately sends out ships to find the other people who are left behind. around 68 people. And he sends two boats. One is called the Good Hoop, and one is the Witevolk, both of which are unsuccessful. In fact, 11 men die on one boat searching for the survivors. So they send out another one about a year later. They send out the Vink, the boat called the Vink, which was, again, not successful. Eventually, they decide, right, we're going to send Lehman back. We're going to send Abraham Lehman back because he probably enjoyed his journey so much that he would love to relive it. He would love to just see that coastline. (laughs) On his rowboat. (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah, exactly. We might even just let him row it. So Lehman is sent off in a boat called the Wakenda Boy. The Weekend Boy. The Wakenda Boy. It sounds like something a politician would have, doesn't it? A a Polish Weekend Boy. (laughs) And and they have another boat called... Very Dutch. The Emelort. So they soon split off when they get south towards Western Australia and they start exploring separately. The Emelort sees fires, shoots some cannons in the hope of getting a response back. They do get some more fires, but they go and explore and find out that it's just Aborigines. The Weekend Boy, on the other hand, finds the original campsite. So it finds where these people originally were. Ah. It also finds parts of um, the wreckage in various places on various islands. Lehman and 13 others is sent off onto a nearby island because they're just exploring everything they come across. Um, And he's sent off onto an island to have a look around. Now, shit happens, Sam. Poor old Lehman, Uh having made this journey already in an open boat, finds himself on an island when the weather turns. And Captain Volkerson of the Wakeend Boy basically buggers off. In very suspicious circumstances, circumstances that later (laughs) find him guilty of gross negligence. Basically, Captain Volkerson does hang around for a while. There's conflicting reports of how bad the weather was. But a few days later, in a different spot, Captain Volkerson actually sees fires, shoots his cannon, gets response fires, and still pisses off. (laughs) Just testing. We have separate accounts from Abraham Lehman's journal that he actually lit fires, had a cannon, and also lit some more fires. So it's there's fairly strong evidence <laughs> that Captain Fulkerson fucked off and left someone in the middle of a country. Sorry, wrong number. Wrong cannon. Yeah, wrong cannon. They just, they just piss off and leave poor bloody Lehman. I can't help but feel that Abraham Lehman may have been a bit irritating. And um, it's happened to him <laughs> twice. 
I don't know whether he was one of those people that captains were just quite happy to be rid of. Do you know what I reckon? He was probably annoyingly cheerful. I reckon he was just really happy-go-lucky, whistling along. Everyone else was like, ah, shit, we're stranded and shipwrecked and we're going to die. Who are we going to eat first? And Lehman's just in the background going, hey, guys, I found some coconuts. Hey, I like coconuts. Coconuts are great. We're going to have a great time. Hey, I've learned a new trick. Let me whistle you a song. <laughs> yeah, la, 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 la. That's probably the sort of positive attitude which helped him survive. 999 bottles of beer on the wall. 999 <laughs> bottles of beer. Come on, everybody. Sing with me. Only 2,000 miles to go. <laughs> what should we do as a drunken sailor? <laughs> you know this one. Come on. Let's make sandcastles. <laughs> so he was producing a really irritating twat. Captain Volkser was probably just happy to see the back of him. But he was irritating, but also had a stubborn desire to stay alive. That's the worst combination. <laughs> happy and with a zest for life. He makes me sick, Tom. A lot of people that get up in the morning and straight away are like, oh, it's four in the morning. Oh, I can't wait to get outside and get on with the day. Working in a call centre. I love call centres. <laughs> So Lehman finds himself stranded in pretty much the same place again. The boat that him and his, how many other people was it, 13 other people um, sailed to this island on is slightly damaged. So they find some fresh water, they eat some seabirds and some seals, and they use some of the seal skins to patch up this small, essentially just a small boat. And they set sail for Jakarta again. His rudder's damaged, so they had to steer with oars. They used blankets as sails. And there were points on the journey when, where the men on, in the boat were too tired to hoist their sails. They were continually bailing water because, bizarrely, putting a seal skin over a hole in a boat doesn't really do the trick. Which is weird, isn't it? Because seals are quite waterproof. <laughs> I'm surprised that... By their very definition, they named a waterproof seal after, in fact, the seal. I'm surprised they didn't just jump on a seal and just ride that yeah. back to Jakarta. There's a lack of creativity here. Do you reckon they uh, sealed the hole? <gasps> oh, bravo, Sam, bravo. So they attempted to seal the hole with seal. <laughs> just jammed <laughs> a, jammed <laughs> just a, just seal it. Just through the hole. <laughs> oh, oh, oh. Shove him in tighter. Shove him in. <laughs> he keeps on biting me. Whose idea was it to put him in head first? <laughs> Check him a fish, see if he'll sharp. <laughs> no, I like him, he's cute, he's sharp, Lehman. <laughs> anyway, the only piece of equipment they had was a compass that breaks, which would really piss you off, but probably not Lehman, he's probably, oh well, I like dead reckoning. It was him who broke it, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah. It wasn't enough of a challenge for him. In the end, yes, Sam, this is the exciting bit, they do start drinking their own urine. That was with about 15 to 16 oh, days left. I have been waiting for this. They did start drinking their piss. And, and seawater, apparently. I, I'm not sure how true that is, because my understanding is if you drink seawater, you just vomit. So it's actually very counterproductive if you wanted to get fluid <laughs> in your system. I, like Bear Grylls, would have just shoved it up my ass. I would have given myself a saltwater enema and ingested it that way, like he did on one of his episodes. What? Have you not heard that? I, I haven't watched many of his episodes, but I have heard that that's what he does in one of them. He shoves some salt water up his ass. If you need to drink salt water, it's best to shove it up your bum. Yep. Using what? Oh, I, I don't know, a sugar cane? I, I, something. <laughs> a discarded snorkel? I don't know. That got dark very quickly. <laughs> <laughs> oh, matron. That's what the sugar cane said. <laughs> Ten points. Ten <laughs> points. 
I almost didn't get that out, Sam. I almost didn't get that out in one. I knew it was good. <laughs> Again, that's what the sugar cane said. <laughs> oh, dear. So, I don't know where the seal would have ended up. In the time that Bear Grylls was uh, shoving things up his ass, Ray Mears would have built a 10-story, five-star hotel out of bits of wood. And he'd be having a whale yeah. of a time. There's no comparison. I would happily be stranded on an island with Ray Mears. I'm pretty sure I once saw an episode of Ray Mears where he literally built a flushing toilet out of bamboo, which I think is an unnecessary luxury when you're stranded in the jungle, but I'm glad he did it anyway. <laughs> I might have dreamed that, but <laughs> you've got some time. You might as well get yourself comfortable. Eventually, yes, our, back our, to drinking our mate, yes, our mate Lehman, Abraham Lehman, finds his way to Java and the boat is wrecked on a reef. And most of the men run off Not to them. Most of the again. men see this as their opportunity and just they, they fuck off. They're probably hallucinating anyway after their horrible journey. And Lehman and three others walk the length of Java for five weeks until they're captured by a local prince and ransomed back to the Dutch. So he gets home. I mean, I've been on some bad coach journeys, but that sounds particularly bad. Yeah, I've been on coach journeys in rural India and Southeast Asia, and they're not comfortable, but I would definitely prefer them to this. The boat, in fact, that the Virgeld Drake was found in 1963, not far from the town in Western Australia, of Lehman. There's the town called ah. Lehman in Australia. I'm slightly disappointed that it was just called Lehman because a lot of Australian towns have fantastic names like Wollongongawong, Bulingongawongal. You see, you're making these names up. As far as I'm concerned, these are perfectly good Brazilian football team names. <laughs> yeah. Throwing back to last week's episode on uh, Conmen. Yeah. Now... I want to go back a little bit. So the reason why the Dutch East India Company was so keen to go back and try and find these stranded survivors... And their money. Yeah, the valuable goods, although it it does seem as if they genuinely were wanting to find the people, was because in 1628 there was the shipwreck of the Batavia, which wrecked on Morning Reef, which is near Brecon Island. I know you know where Brecon Island is, Sam, so I thought if I used that as a reference you'd be able to picture it. Basically 60 kilometres away from Western Australia. And it was the maiden journey of this boat. And it's, it's a lovely boat. I've got some statistics on this boat, Sam. It's 150 feet long. Ooh. Had 24 cast iron cannons. Not sure why they were necessary. I suppose there's piracy, wasn't there? So I think it would be yeah. helpful to have some cannons. Also, you have to have a way of signalling to people who've lit emergency fires that you're not going to stop for them. <laughs> yeah, that you're fucking off. Yeah, absolutely. Um, <laughs> silver coins. And they plan to return home with spices. So this is, seems to be what the journey was. You'd, you'd drop off something and Cash. come back with spices. Yeah, come back with a pepper. 340 people on board, two-thirds of whom were sailors, 100 soldiers, and the rest were civilians or private travellers. Pelsert was the commander of the fleet, and there were three boats, and the three boats got separated. But Pelsert was on the same boat, the Betavia, as the skipper Jacobs, and they didn't like each other very much. So you had a bit of a problem here when they split up, because you basically have two chiefs on one boat. And Jacobs has a right-hand man called Cornelius, and these two had, had basically been planning a bit of a mutiny. When it got shipwrecked, obviously they didn't have to mutiny. A hundred people died immediately, and then Pelsert and Jacobs with 46 other people, sailed to Batavia in one of some of the lifeboats, which took them 33 days. So it seems to be quite a common journey going up this coast of Western Australia to, to get from your shipwreck to Jakarta. So Batavia is a place as well as... And Batavia is Jakarta. Right. Yeah. Oh, of course. Yep. Yeah. I'm there. I'm yeah, in the room. Yeah. So yeah. the ship was the Batavia and it was going to Batavia. Yeah, that's right. That's right. That's my, my confusion. And then Pelsert was immediately returned to rescue the remaining survivors after Jacobs got arrested because it was discovered that he was planning a mutiny. Meanwhile... 
the survivors, Cornelius has seized control. Around 125 men, women and children are murdered, some raped, apparently. 22 soldiers in one incident were sent to a place called Wallaby Island to search for water. And this was a, a plan by Cornelius to actually kill them because he wanted to get rid of those 22 soldiers as well. Fortunately, all they found was wallabies. Yeah, wallab- wallabies. All they found were wallabies. They did actually find water and they were led by a, a chap called Hayes who succeeded in capturing Cornelius. Eventually, Pelsett rescued everyone and the worst mutineers were hung. It just goes Lord of the Flies. Yes, goes full battle royale at the end. Absolutely. Yes, I hadn't seen that film, but yes, that's the principle. So that was obvious. They went after them because they didn't want another murder spree. They didn't want another atrocity committed. It's kind of a morale thing as well, isn't it? I guess you don't want word going around that there's been another shipwreck, as there quite frequently is, and everyone's killed each other after surviving. That's true. It doesn't look good for the company. You know that the governor's not going to send in a yeah. to help. You're not going to pull more sailors into the boats with that recruiting tactic. <laughs> yeah. Come for the scurvy, stay for the murder. We don't give a shit about you. Yeah, no, I don't think no, I don't think that would work as a slogan. So there you go. That's the story of Abraham Lehman getting lost twice. <laughs> Poor Abraham Lehman. I'm sure he was cheerful to the end, though. The insufferable dick. Happy as Larry. <laughs> yeah. But what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Captured by a prince. I've never met a prince before. Ransomed. Ooh, someone likes me. <laughs> well, I can't help but feel a little bit sorry for him, even though I have decided purely based on my imagination is <laughs> a certain character yeah he's a bit of an irritating person it doesn't sound like a nice way to live your life suffering in a boat with no water no and drinking your own piss I, I, I could get used to it <laughs> some people swear by it don't they don't alcoholics drink their own piss uh, good question I'll have to ask one yeah, <laughs> yeah let me rephrase that don't some alcoholics drink their own piss in the hope of curing their alcoholism I still can't answer that question I think it's one of these old wives so tell me more about this man who gets lost looking for something that was lost that he didn't know where it was. Well, he got lost, Tom. Let me tell you that much. I'm going to talk to you today about a guy called Percy Fawcett, who was born in Devon in 1867. Uh, I've chosen an English name because I'm not a fool. He was born to a family of <laughs> sickeningly adventurous people. Really, his family was just one of these groups of people who just achieve amazing things. His dad, who'd been born in India, was a senior member and fellow of the Royal Geographical Society, which sounds very boring but has nothing to do with Oxbow Lakes. It's They, they were the explorers. They were the people who went out and saw brave new places and got shot at with poison arrows and gave indigenous peoples horrible diseases from which they'd never recover. So he was very important and influential. Percy's brother Edward was a mountain climber, an expert in Eastern occult philosophies and a writer of thriller and adventure novels. That's dramatic, Yeah, isn't it? isn't it? Just the kind of person you really want to be hanging around with. He's got stories to tell at parties. He certainly does have stories to tell, and indeed to write into books as an author of thriller and adventure novels. So, yeah, so really adventurous family. Now, Percy started off... Not a very adventurous name, is it? Percy, no, neither's Edward, though. Edward, Edward's not bad. I mean, uh, Nigel, Nigel would be a bad adventurous <laughs> name. Derek. It? Derek and Nigel. But anyway... Old Percy, he wasn't the most adventurous to begin with. He joined the army in 1886 and he joined as an artillery officer, but very quickly realised that maps and exploration and surveying was where his passion was. Uh, he wanted to explore new lands and being stationed in places like Hong Kong and Ceylon, which is modern day Sri Lanka, was the perfect way to start exploring and to kind of indulge this passion. Often with a tacit agreement of, of British military intelligence, because obviously it's very good to know the terrain, it's good to know who's where. 
and how to aim your cannons at them. So he kind of combined it with his military career. He was quite an exciting person to be around. He had lots of celebrity friends, including Arthur Conan Doyle, uh, who uh, wrote The Lost World based on Fawcett's work. Oh. Yeah, and so he, he, was, he became very adventurous. And in 1906, he went on his first trip to South America, which is where his passion really kind of came into its own. And he grew to absolutely love South America. Including the football? adored the football couldn't play himself but loved it he quickly grew to love the country and love the people he'd been sent there as an independent explorer in the first instance from the royal geographic society to map the most remote borders between the countries presumably not not totally independent though they didn't just dump him and say off you fuck <laughs> go, go, go map this area presumably by independently had like a, a few people with him yes he had a, he had a few people he was part of a team but the team were brought in as independent adjudicators establishing where all of the most remote borders between south american nations were there'd been a lot of wars relative relatively recently uh, there were constant kind of toing and froing of borders and a lot of it was very much a, a gray area and so he was sent out to to basically map it, make it all official. He was there to draw maps on paper. On paper, he was there to draw maps. <laughs> drawing them on the back of his hand. Or drawing them on my tummy. Oh, I got a lovely map. Oh, uh, anyway, sorry. Go <laughs> just doodling. I just like doodling. But what he really liked doing was having a bloody good time and a cracking adventure and telling a tall tale about it. He claimed on his first trip to have shot a 62-foot-long anaconda somewhere in Bolivia in 1907. 62-foot in real money is 20 metres. Do such anacondas exist? No, they don't. It was a ludicrously large anaconda that got him laughed out of the uh, scientific community. But he also discovered, he claimed, several other creatures, such as a sort of cat-dog hybrid thing and a giant, highly venomous spider. Uh, most of his claims are known to be absolute nonsense. But he was a very good explorer, and he did discover some genuine animals. There's a dog with two noses that really exists, that he kind of discovered and wrote about for the first time. Yeah, but what he particularly loved was meeting local people, and he got on very well with all of the indigenous people that he met. He had a very friendly disposition, and even though he was a threatening Westerner to an extent, he got on really well with all of the people he met along the way. But it wasn't just animals he was interested in. He was interested in finding lost treasure and cultures. And in around 1914, he came to believe in a great lost city which he called the City of Zed. Just the letter Z. Zed. City of Zed. Yeah, okay. which was somewhere in the Brazilian Amazon. And from a combination of local rumours and from studying long-lost manuscripts, which he discovered in Brazilian government library vaults, uh, dating all the way back to the 1750s, he became convinced there was a long-lost civilization waiting to be discovered. He discovered this thing called Manuscript 512, uh, which was written by a Portuguese explorer many years before. The guy called, I'm going to pronounce this wrong, but this is the only one I'm going to pronounce wrong today, Jao de Silva Guimaraes, uh, who claimed to have discovered this ancient city covered in hieroglyphics and beautiful architecture, but never gave a location for his find. And he became convinced that this city, this ancient lost civilization, was somewhere in the Amazon rainforest. He believed it was in the Mato Grosso state of Brazil. But before he could set out to find it, World War I arrived. Convenience, isn't it? Fucking typical, isn't it? God. It is. He was nearly 50 years old at the time, but regardless, because he was the adventurous sort, at 50 years old, he signed up to fight in the trenches. 
re-enlisting in the Royal Artillery as a major and being decorated several times for his bravery in the field of battle and being promoted to colonel. So, yeah, he was he didn't muck around. But the, the war ended, and now in his mid-50s, Fawcett returned to Brazil to search for the lost city of Zed. And in 1920, he went out completely on his own, and it was an absolute disaster. He caught a fever, nearly died, and had to shoot his horse and eat it to survive. I'm glad you said and eat it. Just <laughs> randomly decides to shoot his horse. <laughs> shoot his horse out of sheer frustration. <laughs> I'm pissed. And you're going to take the brunt of it. Just for fun. But he wasn't going to give up. But in 1925, he tried again. And this time he was accompanied by his son Jack and uh, Jack's friend, Raleigh Rimmel. Ooh, Raleigh Rimmel. Which is the most public schoolboy name I've ever heard. Absolutely. Who wants to do the rimming? Raleigh will rim all. (laughs) He's not picky. Raleigh will rim all. (laughs) After the rugby game... Raleigh proceeded to rim all the players. He rallied around him and he rimmed them all. <laughs> is that too vulgar to make the final cut? That is quite vulgar, isn't it? No, I think that's perfect. I think that's on the right <laughs> side of the border. But anyway, this expedition was funded by a group in London known as The Glove, which is fantastic, isn't it? How good is that? I, I have no more information whatsoever on The Glove. Of course you don't. So perhaps they were dark occultists and the secret cult society, or perhaps they were just stuffy old men in a gentleman's club, who knows. But the three of them set off on April the 20th, 1925, accompanied by two Brazilian guides to act as runners, some guard dogs and eight mules. I love the way the British do this. I love whenever British explorers <laughs> go off on an, on an adventure, they always get some... Just the three of us. Exactly. They'll always get a couple of locals to do all the freaking grunt work, won't they? <laughs> yeah. And, and they don't mention that. They don't mention the fact that when you got to the top of Everest... Oh, Tanzin Norgay. Tanzin Norgay, that's it. Tanzin Norgay never really gets mentioned quite as much, does he? No. So anyway, they uh, just the three of them with all of their guides and provisions set off and they clearly did very well for a while. They got as far as Fawcett had got when he'd had to shoot his horse before, which they made camp at, which they called Dead Horse Camp. <laughs> and we know they made that because uh, Fawcett wrote a letter to his wife saying the trip's going very well and sent one of the Brazilians back on his own to deliver the letter. Go, Brazilian. Go deliver this letter. <laughs> a good use of a Brazilian, I think. Yeah, I've got off your bugger. Go on. Take them hundreds of miles into the jungle, write a letter to your wife telling her everything's okay and then send him to his death trying to return yeah, maybe, it. maybe even send him with some supplies. You know, take, take this to my wife. We don't need supplies and an extra guide. <laughs> it all went wrong. They were last recorded. The last recorded confirmed location was crossing a remote Amazon tributary on May the 29th, and they were never heard from again. As per Percy's very strict instructions, no rescue party was sent out because he assumed that if the mission failed, it would be because they were killed by some local tribe and they didn't want the rescue party to get killed as well. But exactly what happened to him remains a mystery. All of the local tribes in the area, when eventually recontacted again in in the following years, the ones who had known of him spoke very highly of him. And there seems to have been no reason why he would have disappeared, because it was relatively safe terrain that he was in. But the three of them just vanished off the face of the earth. They believe that he was looking for a site which is now known as Kuhikugu, which is near the Zingu River. Kugu. Yeah, Kuhi Kugu. That's what you say to Bateman. <laughs> so a city was eventually discovered relatively close to where he was looking, but nothing of him 
was ever discovered. A very big city as well, about 50,000 people lived there. This was a native tribe that hadn't had contact with the West. Well, the tribe was gone. The tribe was dead. It was a lost civilization. The tribe weren't there anymore. It was the remains of the city, I see. Yeah, absolutely. But there were still indigenous tribes around. Now, some of them had articles from Fawcett. One of them had a name tag of his. One of them had a compass of his. But bizarrely, all of these artefacts dated to his previous solo 1920 expedition. So all of these artefacts from his previous expedition had somehow made it much further up the trail. And either these people had brought them through the tribes with them, or Percy had picked them up and handed them out along the way. But everyone who was there spoke very highly of him. All of the tribes who knew him... Tasted lovely. Were... He tasted lovely. <laughs> oh. Oh, Thomas. <laughs> That's a little insensitive. You're politically incorrect. We're keeping it. <laughs> oh, dear. The whole thing became a bit of a worldwide scandal and a worldwide mystery. Here was this guy, this very highly regarded explorer, who disappeared without a trace. And there were several rescue attempts over the years, despite the fact he said, don't try and rescue me, all of which ended up in disaster. And there were you know, rumours abounded about these rescue trips, that they were cursed and that hundreds of men died trying to find him. That was absolute bollocks. Only one man ever died trying to find him, and he was a slightly crazy man who went out on his own. But many trips were made, and, and no one ever found him, and no one ever found the city that quite matched what he was looking for. They got similar, but they never quite got close. And various people claimed to have found his bones. They were found apparently in the 1950s. They were being kept by a local tribe. And then they were found again in 1965 in a box in a museum somewhere. <laughs> Good to see you did your research, Sam. <laughs> well, no, it's. I mean, they're all. These are all nonsense conspiracy yeah, yeah, theories. Yeah. And there have been many documents, there are uh, documentaries, many newspaper clippings. It's sort of believed that the three of them ended up getting lost in the jungle and ended up starting a kind of commune with some of the more friendly tribes and eventually had families and stayed out there. That's what some people believe. But it's really completely unknown. And it is one of the great mysteries of Victorian Edwardian exploration. What happened to Percy Forsyth and the expedition to City Z? I suspect that happened quite a lot, Sam, what you're saying about getting lost and then actually just deciding, you know what, we're stuffed. We're just going to have to make do. I would yeah. be surprised if that happened quite a lot with the survivors of some of these shipwrecks. They just get onto the coast yeah, of West absolutely. Australia, find an Aboriginal group if they're not too hostile. And I imagine there was quite a lot of hostility because, you know, we are humans. We're not... Yep. <laughs> we're pack animals, aren't we? We're wolves. It's what we do. <laughs> I wouldn't be surprised if people just actually decided that that's it. This is me. I'm going to have to start a family here. I'm going to have to live with an Aboriginal tribe. What do you think, Sam, having deeply researched this for years of your life? <laughs> well, in the uh, two and a half hours of hardcore research that I've given this... <laughs> I suspect he probably did get very lost, get taken in by a local tribe, or got very ill and got taken in by a local tribe, ended up spending some time with them and stayed. Unless he found the lovely, lovely, lovely Amazonian lady the first time he went. Well, possibly. As you were saying with these shipwrecks, it wasn't entirely uncommon for mutinous ships yeah. to refuse to board after stopping off at an island which happened to be filled with beautiful people and fruit. Yes, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and the nice, nice beaches. All-you-can-eat buffets. Yeah. yeah. So I suspect that he was hugely keen on the Amazon. He went out there many, many times. He loved the local people. He loved the culture. I suspect he probably stayed out there. And, you know, he might have been, for all of his life, looked for this city and just used this tribe as a base for his explorations. 
but who knows? Fascinating, Sam. Fascinating. And he is the inspiration for Indiana Jones. I had heard the Indiana Jones reference. That's where it, it rung a bell. But I hadn't heard that story. I'd say they do still discover, on a semi-regular basis, lost cities in, in the Amazon. They do exist. They still get found. That's exactly what I was going to say, Sam. It's, it's one of the most remote places on the planet, isn't it? The, the rainforests of South America, Brazilian rainforest. And yet there are still uncontacted tribes that occasionally get spotted from aircrafts, aren't there? Yeah, absolutely. And you think you know the world now. You think with satellite images and hundreds of years of exploration, we pretty much got the world down. But there's an awful lot that we still don't know about what's on land, let alone in the oceans. There are now technologies, aren't there, that can use satellite imaging to just see I don't know exactly how they work but I know that this technology has been used in places like Egypt to search for lost remains from towns and cities etc and it's been very successful I think what they do is basically a radar like, yeah. screen yeah. from high above and because it's from very high above and a very direct angle you can kind of tell how deep underground the structure is or whether the ground is harder yeah. it's a bit like an extension of the what they call a geophysics which you fly a plane above a historical site and above all of the ruins of the walls the grass will be a slightly different color so when you look at it from above you can see the outline of whatever building was there before or old battlements which isn't visible on the ground and i think it just takes that and adds an extra layer to it watching time team i yeah i know what you're talking about they also have little they loved a bit of geophys on time team they didn't loved they loved their geophys they used to call it geophys they, they, they had like metal detectors though for the geophys as well didn't they waggle those around on the floor. yeah yeah Yes, my dad used to be a very keen metal detector waggler. Did he find anything good? No, did he buggery? <laughs> he found a lot of tins of Stella. Oh, yeah, I bet. Near Orsford, which is where I was brought up, there's the Battle of Cheriton site, which is a Civil War war site, and there are a lot of metal detectors go over there, and you might, they might find the odd bit of shot. I think he found a musket ball occasionally, yeah, musket yes. Ball, that's right. I, it's one of my goals in life, Sam, to find basically find a treasure hoard when walking down a country path. Not, not much. I don't <laughs> want much. That is a good Sam. and achievable life goal. I don't want much. I just want like a big Anglo-Saxon hoard. I mean, I'm not asking for much. <laughs> Maybe just like Sutton Who. Maybe a Sutton Who type fair. Maybe a chariot burial. Oh, that's reasonable. I don't want much. I just want a sword. Yeah. A shield. Yeah. Some golden brooches. Is that too much to ask? Some buried horses. I, no, not too much to ask, I think. Reasonable. Something that I can put on the mantelpiece. Well, I was talking recently, you know, the um, German gold and loot trains that were hidden at the end yes, of World War Two. Yes. They buried them in tunnels and they've just, they think, discovered one relatively recently, an entire f- train filled with gold and military equipment and precious stuff and nice things that the Germans had hidden away in some Polish mountainside. The grumpy old German man sitting at the back. Right there, doing Tickets, please. <laughs> It'd be, that'd be like Indiana Jones, wouldn't it? It'd be like the end of Indiana Jones, where those crusaders yeah, are in the cave. Yeah. Oh, hiya, hello. Ah, you chose <laughs> poorly. <laughs> With just as many Nazis as well. We should probably come up with some kind of topic for next week, shouldn't we? Oh, I hadn't thought about this. Neither had I, but... I'm going to look at things around me. Printer. Let's do the history of printers. Do you know what? Let's do books. Books. Let's do controversial books. Oh, controversial books. Sam, when I was looking... Or is that a bit weak? Oh, no, I think it's a good topic, but it's just reminded me. When I was looking up topics for this podcast, I was looking up lost literary works, and I came across 120 Days of Sodom. Have you heard of that? No, I haven't. It sounds like a porn film. Oh, God. 
It sounds very Fifty Shades of Grey. Worse. Now, I'm, I'm going to probably get the information wrong, so I briefly researched this and realised what a repulsive book this was and then decided I'm not going anywhere near it. But it was a French <laughs> prisoner wrote it in the Bastille and then at the siege of the Bastille, he escaped, but he left his work there. It was found, basically, maybe 100 years later, poked into a crevice in one of the walls. And it's 120 Days of Sodom. And it is a repugnant book from the synopsis that I read. It's not just about <laughs> sodomy. I have nothing against sodomy. But it, it was about child molestation, skinning people alive. It's just all the worst God. possible sexual perversions. So from the sounds of it, this guy probably shouldn't have been released slash escaped. And it's a published book. It's banned in a lot of countries, and rightly so. Jesus. And I just imagine literary critics sitting around, sipping drinks, talking about, oh, the 120 days wonderful work it's not it's not it's a fucking horrible perverted anyway so yeah i'm uh, not going to be doing that but yeah let's do lost what well, I tell you, well let's do banned or controversial literature controversial literature okay and or controversial books yeah perfect good idea let's do that that'll give me something to look up and it'll give me something to read i like being saucy as i've said a couple of times in the- you are saucy tom you love a good absolutely. read absolutely I love a good source. Amazing. Well, thank you all so much for listening. We really do appreciate it. What we'd really love is if you wouldn't mind subscribing to us. It would make us just feel swell. We have a website. That was geniuspodcast.com. And you can subscribe to us on there. You can leave comments as well, which we'd love to hear from you. And you can follow us on social media. Please do get in touch with us. We would love to hear from you. And we'd love it if you followed us and let us know that you appreciate what we do. It was warm our cockles. Not on the street, but on social media. Yeah, don't follow us on the street. That's weird. Yeah, it's also bad for our analytics. I've got no way of tracking how many people are following me on the street. <laughs> yes, you do. Look out the window. It's a massive crowd. <laughs> Messiah! You are the Messiah! I'm not the Messiah. I'm a very bad historian. <laughs> and I love working with <laughs> Me too. And on that note, we will see you next week for a thrilling delve into the darker side of literature. Goodbye. Goodbye. Hello everyone, Sam here. If you like this podcast, would you do us a favour and subscribe and review us on your favourite app? It'll really help us grow. Even better, why not share it with your friends? They will definitely thank you later. We'll see you next week.